Well, as we uh, dig into the, the prophet Joel this evening, I want to start with a question. It's a heavy question. Uh, and that is this. Have you ever experienced in your life a time of, of desolation? Not a word that you probably use all the time, but I think it's an appropriate word. A, a time that just left you feeling desolate, empty, where you feel like things are, are falling apart all around you. You feel like there's, there's a real sense of just heaviness and weight, maybe loneliness, where it seems like more things are falling apart than are coming together. Have you ever felt this personally through broken relationships or nagging depression or illness? Have you felt it on a, a family level where, if you're honest, your family is just a mess? Have you felt it on maybe a, a, a national level in some sense? Maybe you feel that now. It's a weird time for our country. Things seem weirder in some ways than they have been uh, usually, right? Have you felt it spiritually at different points in your life where you just feel, feel spiritually desolate, spiritually alone, spiritually broken? I've definitely felt that way many times personally, even just in the story that I just told, uh, uh, introducing myself, just the, the highlights, you can probably read between the lines that some serious stuff has gone down in the midst of that, right? A, a church that, that I poured everything I had into for half my 20s and all of my 30s died in a mess of conflict and controversy. And then the very next day, I started with, with a group of other people. We, we started this, this new church that had no time to regroup, and honestly, it was a mess. Great things happened through it, but it was, it was a mess. It never really came together. We never really got our feet under us. It was hard. Those years for the, from the last part of Mars Hill up through uh, the better part of the last year or so uh, leading up to when we, we joined with Door of Hope have been some of the most desolate that I have ever experienced. It was a dark time for me in so many ways. Do you guys feel any of that today? Maybe you consider yourself a Christian and it leaves you wondering like, where is God in the midst of all this? I thought he promised better stuff. What is going on? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not sure if you are a Christian or not and you're like, man, am I missing something? What, what, what is this? Does God have any answers? Do you people have any answers to any of this? Well, I don't know if I have all the answers that you're looking for exactly, but what I want to assure you is that in the middle of your mess, whatever form, whatever shape, whatever your experience, in the middle of your mess, I believe God is at work. God works in the midst of desolation, in my experience, uh, like almost nothing else. And I wish it were different. I wish that I could experience uh, profound lessons and, and transformation in my life in the best of times when I get exactly what I want when I want it but that has not been my experience, and I'm guessing it hasn't been a lot of yours either. And, and it's right into the middle of that kind of experience and those kind of questions that the prophet Joel speaks. I wanna give you just a little bit of background on Joel and a little bit of background on the, on the first part of his book that leads us to the passage we're gonna be in. Joel is, a, a, is considered a minor prophet, and the word minor prophet just means uh, generally that they didn't write as much as those who were considered the major prophets. Uh, Old Testament prophets were, were folks that, that God used in a specific way to, to speak his word to his people. And, and it's almost always a word of, of correction. Generally speaking, God's people tend to walk away from him, 
and the prophet calls them back. And this is the constant back and forth of the Old Testament between God's people, the nation of Israel, which the word literally means struggles with God. That's what the name means. The nation of struggles with God, and they live up to their name. They're constantly falling out of relationship with God, going after other things, and God is constantly calling them back through different circumstances, different people, and, he, and the prophets are somehow he, he does that. We don't know a lot about Joel. Uh, we don't know really exactly when he wrote. It's likely the tail end of a very difficult time uh, for Israel as they ended up in, in exile uh, in Babylon. Uh, it, it's likely towards the tail end of that or either uh, uh, right before another one happens, but that's kind of how it was with Israel. It's either, it's either the tail end of one mess or they're about to enter another one. And, and somewhere in there that he speaks this. And, and, and Joel starts off in chapter 1 from the beginning with a very ominous tone. It, he, he kind of predicts that there's this, this plague coming of, of locusts, uh, almost reminiscent of, of some of what happened in, in Exodus. He says that there's going to be this swarm of locusts, swarming, hopping, and cutting, and they're going to lay waste to everything Israel has. He says they're going to lay waste to my vine. They splintered my fig tree. And, and as far as we can tell, scholars are a little bit divided, but general consensus seems to be that he's talking about actual bugs. It's not a metaphor for something else. He's talking about a, a, an, an intense uh, plague and, and affliction that will come on God's people. Uh, he talks about how fields will be destroyed, the ground mourns, all the wine dries up, there will be drought in short. Desolation, right? And in response to this desolation, God calls His people through the prophet Joel to respond to Him in, in repentance. God's people have not been faithful to them, and He sends this plague of locusts to, to call them back into relationship, to turn from the way they have been and turn back towards relationship with God. And He calls this reckoning the day of the Lord. And this is a big theme that runs throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, but it crosses over into the New Testament as well. It's, it's when God shows up in a definitive way for both judgment and mercy. He says, the day of the Lord is coming, so come back to God. That's what he says in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he, he repeats the same pattern in the first part of chapter 2. This time, it, it uses similar language as, as to the locusts, but this time, it seems to be an actual army that's coming. And they're going to bring anguish and destruction and judgment. The sun, the moon, and the stars are even going to fail. It's going to be apocalyptic when this army shows up. And he says that, that it's not just a random army, it's an army of God coming for judgment. And again, he, he associates this with, with with the day of the Lord, and again he calls them to repent. He says, says, this day of reckoning is coming. Repent, even now, it says in chapter 2, verse 12, declares the Lord, even now there's still time. Return to me with all your heart, he cries out to his people. He says, not just an outward show. He says, don't just tear your clothes as an outward show. He says, respond to me with your heart, the deepest part of who you are. Can you feel the weight of this all piling on as he's going through this in chapters 1 and, and 2? They're far from God. Things are falling apart. Everything is either broken or feels like it's about to be broken. It's desolation. But that's not the last word. Right at the center of the book, in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, the, the, it kind of reaches a, a pivot point, and the whole tone changes, and that's where we're going to pick up with our passage that we're going to start looking at here. Into the midst of desolation, 
God speaks a word of hope and a word of, of promise. Starting in verse 21, he says that the day of the Lord is not going to be just a time of judgment and desolation, but also mercy and restoration for God's people. He says, fear not, don't be afraid. The Lord has done great things. He says, he says your pastures will again be green, he says. The, he says the, the, the vine and the fig tree that were splintered and, and laid waste in chapter 1 by the locust, he says, he says they're going to be restored. The fig tree and the vine will give their full yield, it says in, in verse 22. And he says the land that is scorched by drought will once again actually be green. And it's an interesting wordplay. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I read notes. Uh, it's kind of the shortcut. And, and this word for green that, that happens here in uh, verse 22 is only used one other place in all the Scripture, and that is uh, in the first creation story in Genesis chapter 1, when it says that He created all the plants and, and they were green and they were good. It's almost like he's saying, he's saying it was, it, the locust destroyed everything, but God is going to restore it even to the way it was perfectly in the original creation before anything else went wrong. Humanity's rebellion breaks and ruins everything, but God's restoration is going to set things right, he promises. He continues in verse 23, and this image of, of drought in the midst of that is going to come early rain, abundant rain, he says resulting in, in a full restoration where in verse 24, the, the threshing floors will be full of grain again. Their vats will overflow with, with wine and oil, and wine and oil and, and grain were, were signs of all prosperity and satisfaction in their day. He says, I will restore, you may have heard this, this phrase before, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Everything lost will be restored God takes things away sometimes, but He also gives them back as His promise, which ultimately leads to this sense of, of satisfaction. In verse 26, He says, you will eat in plenty. You will be satisfied. You will again praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wonderfully, wondrously rather, with you. And He says, He promises, my people will never again be put to shame. I will be with them. Relationship with me, God says, will be restored. It's broken now. It's a mess. But you're going to be with me. I will be with you. And you will never again, he says uh, uh, again a second time, be put to shame. God promises through Joel that, that the day of the Lord is not only a time of judgment, but it's also a time of mercy and restoration things put back as good or even better than they were before. And so back to kind of where we started. How do you think they would have received this? I, I always, when I'm trying to understand a passage, I always try to ask myself, so how would they have felt? Try to put myself in their place, to, to try as best as I can to, to feel some of what they might have felt. How would, how would it feel in the midst of desolation to receive promises like this? My first reaction, I don't know how it strikes you, but it feels like it's almost too much to take in at once. When you're in the moment of, of desolation, promises like this, they almost seem too much to bear, but I want to encourage you in the midst of that, even though it seems overwhelming, it doesn't make it any less true because I think we can always trust what God has promised for us. 
I've been on both sides of that equation. I've been on that, that side that's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I hear the verse, God works for the good of those who are called to his purpose and stuff. But if I'm honest, I don't really see it right now. I'll trust it, but I don't really see it. But then I've also had that, that point down the line when you can look back and see, actually, that's completely true. Maybe some of you are caught in that dark space right now, and I just want to encourage you. God is always working for our good. His good might not match the good that you're wanting, but He's always working, even in the midst of desolation and darkness. This was meant to be a word of hope for those that would have first heard it, but it's also a word of hope for us. It's not just a word for them then, it's a word for us now, and that's what we see even more so as he continues. He starts talking about the promise of a, of a future day of the Lord, and then this next passage connects even further into the future from where, from where Joel is writing. He's writing eh, somewhere in the ballpark of a few hundred to five or six hundred years before Jesus was born, depending on when it was written. Sometime uh, you know, centuries before Jesus was born. But we're going to see how it connects directly to Jesus in this next passage. It says in, in verse 28, in, in even broader promises, he says, and it shall come to pass afterward, after some length of time, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now this is interesting because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on certain people at certain times. It was associated with the temple, and so if you wanted to be with God's presence, you went to the temple. Uh, and it was associated with certain people, usually prominent leaders in the nation of Israel like, like priests and, and prophets. Uh, the first people that are ever uh, actually mentioned to be filled with the Spirit is actually some interior designers, these guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, that are commissioned uh, to decorate God's tabernacle. So good news for Josh White and his design sense. Uh, there's a long line of Spirit-filled designers uh, throughout Scripture, but mostly… Could we maybe talk about it after our time together? Possibly. Okay, cool. <laughs> And so, uh, through, through Joel, God promises to pour His Spirit out on, on all people. Not just people at a particular time in a particular place. Not just special leaders uh, like, like prophets and priests. But actually, he, he promises to pour out His Spirit on, on all people. All different kinds of people and do it continually. And he says, not just men in special positions. He goes on in this, this next phrase, he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Uh, it, it's not limited to just men. A lot of the prophets, uh, not all, but a lot of the prophets were many saying, sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit. He says, says God's Holy Spirit will end up poured out on, on men and women, young and old, servant and and free. It crosses gender barriers. It crosses socioeconomic positions. And this would be, this would be something they never heard of or, or even thought of in that day, way beyond their understanding. And, and it would have been a profound word for them who heard it right then, but it ultimately points to an even greater reality, something that is fulfilled ultimately fully in Jesus. Now, I'm going to jump forward and talk a little bit about Jesus and how he saw the Holy Spirit. At, at the end of his life, when he was about to be betrayed and killed, uh, as we read about it in 
John chapter 14 and 16, he actually says in some of his final conversations with his disciples, he talks to them a whole bunch about the Holy Spirit. He promised that the Holy Spirit would come as a, as a helper for his people, uh, that he would be called, that he refers to him as the Spirit of truth. And he says the Spirit of truth will come to, to bring into remembrance everything that Jesus said to his followers. Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed, that he was going to be killed, that he would raise from the dead, that he would return uh, to relationship uh, with, present, present rather with, with his heavenly Father. And he knew he wasn't going to be there, and he said the Holy Spirit's going to come to remind his people of everything that he did say when he was there. Uh, and uh, he goes on to say that, that the Holy Spirit will, will convict the world uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and guide his followers into the real truth. Later that day, he was betrayed uh, by his closest friends. He was abandoned. He was turned over to Jewish authorities who should have worshipped him as the Messiah, but instead they flipped on him uh, and, and, and kind of rallied to get him executed. And he was. He was killed in a horrible way by crucifixion. But we know, according to the Scriptures, that he rose from the dead. Uh, he hung out with his disciples for a month, month and a half-ish. Uh, and then he ascended back to the Heavenly Father. And, and sorry, not, not, uh, we don't know exactly how long he was with his disciples. It, it's a month or so after that then that his disciples are gathered for this Jewish feast of, of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And if you know your Bible, you're recognizing this, this passage from Joel. And, and in Acts chapter 2, it describes this amazing scene where suddenly out of nowhere, a sound uh, from heaven came like, like rushing wind, it says, and divided tongues of fire came and, and rested on each of these disciples as they were gathered. Now, what that is, I have no idea. What a divided tongue of fire is, uh, your guess is as good as mine. But, but it was something unusual. And, and they all started to, to uh, speak in other languages that they could understand, but other people couldn't. Uh, and this experience spread to all these others around them as well. It said people gathered from every nation under heaven. And, and so those that are looking on in this, they, they assume what what any of us might assume, like, these guys have been hitting the bottle pretty early, right? That's what they said, because it was in the morning. Uh, they said, these guys are drunk. They're crazy. And in the midst of the scene, Peter stands up among them, and he starts to preach. And his first words are, brothers, we are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. That's what he says. That's, that's the intro to his sermon. It's a, good, it's a good beginning. What you are experiencing, he says, is what was promised by the prophet Joel. That's what he says. And then he quotes this exact passage. He said, what you are experiencing today, as he describes it in Acts 2, is what Joel promised when he said he would pour out the Holy Spirit on all of his people. He makes an important change, though, to the passage at the beginning. Instead of saying, and it shall come to pass afterwards, like it says here, uh, according to Joel, he changes it and he says, in the last days it shall be. And by saying that, I believe Jesus, uh, Peter is, is, is trying to indicate the significance of this passage. And what he's saying is nothing less than the day of the Lord that Joel promised has arrived. That's what he's saying. The day of the Lord that, that Joel promised begins there at Pentecost, he says. It begins today. The last stage of God, God's plan, he announces, has begun. Joel promised it. Centuries before, Peter says, today it is fulfilled, at least in part. It's part of the plan. It's kind of the beginning. The promised day of the Lord begins at that time, 
But it's both, uh, as, as theologians call it, there's one theologian that I like called it, he says it's the, the already not yet promise of God. It's already begun, but hasn't yet been completely fulfilled. It's like a, an inaugurated king, one who is anointed to rule, but doesn't quite come into his rule, like, like Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, which I'm a nerd for that kind of thing. You know, he's, he's declared king a long time before, and all kinds of things have to go down, and cosmic forces of evil must be defeated, right? Before he can enter that position, he's inaugurated as the king, and eventually he's crowned kingdom, and it, it, the, the king, and it's, it's glorious, Theologians call this uh, the same idea, inaugurated eschatology. It's an inaugurated uh, kind of view of, of the end of things. So the day of the Lord started then, it continues today, and it, be, it will be fulfilled at a future point, at, at the final day. And that's the last passage that we look at here before we kind of consider what it means for us. The final day. Peter quotes all of all of what we just heard, he also quotes this, this final passage and this passage from Joel as well and it, as Joel looks even further into the future. He says in verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus actually uses most of these words in, in another one of his final conversations with some of his disciples that's recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he quotes all of these signs as signs of when he will return for the final day of the Lord, when he will be the instrument of the day of the Lord who comes with both judgment and mercy at the end of things as we know them. And Revelation 6, uh, the book that says more about the end of things than anything else, also quotes this same passage uh, with, with almost all of these different images as a part of it. As the great and awesome day of the Lord, the old creation as we know it will pass away and, and all things will be made new and every human being will either enter perfect relationship with God for all eternity or be cut off from Him forever. And what determines which way this goes? Well, he says it in the last verse that we have here in this passage. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and it says, And it shall come to pass, this final promise that we're looking at here, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the Old Testament, the Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name by which God reveals Himself personally to His people. But the Bible says that the fullest revelation of the one true God of the Bible comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And even Paul gets on the Joel train in uh, Romans chapter 10 uh, with quoting uh, some of this, this same passage as well. When, when Paul explains what it means to call, uh, out, call upon the name of the Lord in this way, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, and he quotes Joel here, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, just like He promised. For everyone, he says in Romans 10.13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus. Yet, 
they, like, like so many other passages in the Old Testament, could, could practically be in the Gospels in the way that they talk about Jesus. And, and if you don't know what that means, uh, Gospels are, are the four kind of biographical accounts of Jesus. They, they, it, what I mean is, is throughout the Old Testament, we have passage after passage after passage that predict Jesus coming, explain what he's going to be about, talk about what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish, just like Joel is here. And the only hope for humanity that Joel is pointing us to is right relationship with God. Sin and rebellion against God breaks that relationship. A day of reckoning is coming for everyone, and the only hope to be saved from that judgment is Jesus. And we see this chain as we look at these passages from Joel to Jesus, from Peter to Paul, all the way down the line to us today. This, this message of calling out to the name of the Lord to be saved it rings out all across time. And as we consider all this, there's two things that really stick out to me that I want to just talk about as we, as we wrap this up. Two very important lessons that I think tie this up and bring it back a little bit emotionally and personally to where we started. And, and the first thing that just jumped out to me is this idea that God works through desolation to draw us to Himself. Throughout the history of God's people, just as it continues today, God seems to work through difficult things to accomplish things in His, his people's lives. To, to wake people up. Maybe to meeting Him for the first time or to, to growing closer to Him in relationship with Him. Or when we have strayed from Him to, to bring us back Sometimes it's locusts. Sometimes it's invading armies. Sometimes it's something less, I don't know, Old Testament-y, right? Sometimes God brings them directly. That's what happened here. All this mess that seems to be coming on Israel seems to be coming from God's hand. I believe things like that still happen today. Sometimes maybe He's not as, as actively bringing them, but He simply allows them to happen. And sometimes... It's things we do to ourselves, But whatever it is, and it's hard to know what, which, which is which, right? Sometimes there's not a clear answer to like, God, did, are you bringing this? God, is, are, are you behind all this? You can ask Him when you see Him, right? It's not always clear. But what is clear is that God always works through them. God always works in the midst of them whether you are experiencing consequences from things you have brought on yourself or whether something dropped on you dark and destructive out of nowhere, whatever it is, God has something for you in the midst of it. It's not going to tie everything off neatly with the bow. It's not going to fix everything exactly the way you want it. He doesn't promise that. But He promises to be with us. He promises to work in and around us. He promises to do things in us in the midst of times of desolation. And when we drift away from Him into being satisfied with other things, lesser things, He's jealous of us. I didn't, I didn't read the verse, but verse 18 where it pivots, it says that 
that, that's the pivot point. God says he, he saw where they were at and he was jealous of them. At first glance, that might sound weird to you, but, but think about it. He loves his people. He wants to be with his people. He wants his people to be with them. And if we were created by a creator God, and if to be fully human means to be in close relationship with our creator, then it makes perfect sense that anything that would come between that would be a mercy for God if he allowed it to fail and fall apart because he knows that it's not going to bring us what we want. It's not punishment, always in the midst of desolation. I think it often is not punishment. It's mercy. Because here's what I found to be true in my life, and see if this, makes, see if this rings true for you. It might not sound optimistic, but optimism for me doesn't make sense of the world more times than not. Now, that's just how I'm wired, so if you're optimistic, you're like, of course it does. And that's fine. It's okay to be your way, too. I'm just not that way. Um, in God's mercy, He cares more about relationship with us than our comfort. God cares more about His version of our good than our own best version of our good. It's the only thing that makes sense of my life is, is clinging to that. God is, is clinging to the fact that, that, that God is, is up to something. God is working for something that I'm trusting is better than what I seem to have. And I think in time, in my life, in my experience, as I look back, he's proven that to be true over and over and over again. I think of the old hymn, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And, and, the, and the refrain is, Jesus, Jesus, uh, how I've, I've trust him, how I've proved him over and o'er. Or and o'er mean, means like old-timey for over and over. You put him to the test and he comes through over and over again. But he doesn't come through giving me exactly what I want. He doesn't come through giving me when I want it. He doesn't give it to me on my terms. He's concerned with bringing me closer to Him. And whatever you're going through right now, I want you to cling to that same truth. And like I said earlier, I wish we could learn things in comfort and ease on our own terms and in our own time, but it is just not the way. Like Josh talked about last week, God meets us in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, seems to be when He shows up so clearly. Whatever you're going through, God is reaching out to you in the midst. And I want to encourage you tonight to listen to Him and respond. That was why He did everything that we talked about in, in, in the midst of Joel, the, the minor prophet. He sent things against Israel to, to shake them, to, to wake them up so they would come back to Him and be with Him. And that leads to our second lesson, which is all of life is repentance. Repentance means turning from our sin, turning from our own way, turning from having to have everything the way we want it, when we want it, or it's game over. It's turning our back on that and submitting ourselves to God and His purposes and His timing and what He says our lives should look like. 
And Christians can tend to think of repentance as, a, as something you do once that brings you into a relationship with God, and then it's kind of over. But Martin Luther, uh, when he was kind of running up to the time that we know as the Protestant Reformation, he was concerned with a ton of things, and, and his chief concern when he wrote his, his 99 theses, his 99 ideas, and nailed them to the, the chapel door at the, the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany, the number one thing, the first item on his list of 99 bones to pick with the Catholic Church was this, all of life is repentance. That's my paraphrase. It, it, it was like all of life consists of repentance or something like that is how he said it, but it was different in German, I'm assuming. The first time we repent, we begin relationship with God. But then we continue to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin. We repent. We grow closer to Him. We come more and more fully under His influence. We become more and more like Jesus until the great and awesome day of the Lord that seals the deal once and for all. And Luther's last words that were recorded, I, I hadn't actually read this before until I read this this week. His last recorded words were something he scrawled on his deathbed on a little scrap of paper. His last words that he wrote were this, we are beggars, this is true. <laughs> it shows that he believed this to his dying day, that all of life consists in, in recognizing that we're a mixed bag until we see Jesus. There's always something wrong at work in the midst of us, and all of life consists of, of turning from that towards the mercy and grace of God. That's what makes the mercy and grace of God so, so powerful. It's not powerful at all if we don't feel the need for it, right? And so after Peter spoke all those words of, of Joel at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the, the, the people cried out what I hope is what you might be crying out right now. They cried out with this question, Peter, what shall we do in response to this? What shall we do? And I'll answer you with Peter's words because I think they're exactly what we should do today. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. All of you who feel far off from God, all of you who might not feel far from God but are pretty far tonight, His promise comes for you. He is seeking you before you know you need to be found. That's who He is. That's what kind of God He is. And that same Spirit promised by Joel and poured out in Peter's time is working here today. He's working right here now in this room tonight. He's convicting your hearts now of the same thing that Jesus said it would, of sin, of a coming day of the Lord, of reckoning, where there will be judgment and the truth of Jesus. He's working in your hearts to draw you to turn from your rebellion against Him. And submit yourself to Jesus, to enter relationship with Him, to draw closer to Him. And my prayer for you here tonight is that the same thing would happen amongst us even here this evening as happened in response to Peter's sermon a couple thousand years ago. That day by day, the Lord would add more to our number those who are being saved. That's what I want. That's my prayer. That's why Door of Hope exists. 
That's why, why even though the name on the building changes, I praise God that we're still in that same business, that there's people here just like there were before us with, with this long strain that goes back all the way to the turn of the century in 1909 when this started as Sunnyside Congregational Church and continued until it became Community Bible Fellowship in 1977. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, they had it for a while, and then there was a little inter, intermittent period where some, some folks had it privately and kind of lived in the basement, and it was kind of weird, and then we bought it and continued. So besides that little, that little intermission, this is what's been going on here, and that's why God has you here tonight. And I just want to encourage you from the words of Joel, if you're feeling that desolation, God is working in the midst of it. He's calling you to Himself. Answer his call. Let's pray.